0: Acts 27, we are continuing this amazing story in Acts with this incredible trip across the ocean here. Now, we will actually cover the entire chapter of Acts 27 today, so I hope you brought your lunch. Um, No, not really, but we we will read just a small chunk, and I'm going to read in big sections at a time. So, let's read verses 21 to 26. 21 to 26 is where we'll start. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Heavenly Father, we we come here today desiring to hear from you with distractions and burdens and difficulties that may draw our attention away. Would you work through your Holy Spirit to give us willing and humble hearts to hear your words, incline our heart to your word, open our eyes that we may see and understand what your word has to say, unite our hearts to fear your name, And Father, satisfy us with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. I think it's been a really long time since anyone's quoted that passage to me, years even. I think it used to get quoted a lot. Are you afraid of quoting that passage to other people? I think that many of us are. Because usually when I hear Christians quote passages like Romans 8.28 or other promises from God, we seem to be very apologetic about it. We seem to say things like, you know what, I know you've heard this before, And I know this is nothing new for you, and the last thing I want to do in this tough time is to give you easy answers, so here you go. What a strange way to treat the Word of God. The basis for our hope. The basis for our foundation in trusting God. Why are we apologetic? Why are we so afraid to go to the Word of God with clarity and with authority? I think there could be a number of reasons for this. Maybe we're afraid of being inauthentic. You know, the last thing we want to be is one of Job's comforters, right? And in our world, we value authenticity so much that we don't want to come across as impersonal or simplistic or give easy answers, and we definitely don't want to minimize the difficulty. And we're so afraid of giving trite answers or pat answers or simplistic answers that we don't give any answers, Not from the Word of God, at least, with authority and clarity. Or maybe we don't share promises like this with each other because we don't always believe that they are true, at least from a worldly point of view. Maybe you've been following Christ long enough to know that Christians who trust the Lord suffer greatly. And sometimes following the Lord might bring other difficulties into your relationships your families, your jobs, in spite of the fact that so many Christians, not just the ones on TBN, say that coming to Jesus, believing in Jesus, will make your life so much better. Your families will get better. Your children will obey. Well, you've realized as you walked with the Lord, that's not necessarily true. You've stuck around and, and been through the pain with other people. And maybe when you hear, you know, the Lord is at work, just trust Him. You've become cynical. Or maybe our biggest problem is the same problem we've always had. The same problem we've had since the Garden of Eden. Maybe we doubt God's goodness. Maybe we believe the first lie we were ever told, that that God is a miser. That God's holding out on you. That God doesn't have your best interests in mind. That you need to, to grab a hold of life by yourself and define your own reality and do what you need to do. And we've been questioning God ever since, haven't we? maybe you actually do believe that God can help. He's powerful enough to help you in your suffering. But you don't believe he wants to. That God can, but God doesn't care. And so we doubt his character. We doubt his goodness. And of course, we doubt his promises. Well, regardless of how you feel this morning and how you define your reality this morning, God's going to redefine it for us, which is what we need to do often. And we're going to see that here in this incredible story in Acts 27. And we're going to see it as this story, this beautiful story, this detailed story is going to show us one thing and one thing in particular. And the one thing I want you to leave here knowing more than anything else is this. God is faithful. God is faithful to keep His promises to keep his word God is true he's dependable he's reliable he doesn't give up on us he doesn't bail out when times get tough he is faithful to the end he keeps his promises to the end and we can trust him isn't that a glorious truth it's such a blessing to know that's true but it can be so hard to trust can't it you can know that one minute and then doubt it the next can't we You know, in our our Christian walk, so often as we try to trust the Lord, we we are on this pendulum swing from rebellion all the way to the other side, which is despair. And we go back and forth between rebellion and despair, trying to trust the Lord. And that's what it seems like our life can be made up of. But We need to get out of ourselves and trust the Lord who is faithful. We need to see that God keeps his promises, he's faithful to the end, and that's where we find our hope, whether you're in rebellion or despair. And that's what I believe Luke and the Holy Spirit working through Luke wants to show us this morning. Well, we're coming to the story in Acts, which is an impressive story, but it's difficult for people in our world to understand. It's, it's a story that has two elements that we're not familiar with. One is geography, and the other is boating terms, or shipping terms, or whatever it might be. Um, I have to confess from the beginning that I'm not an expert in either one of these. I use Google to get wherever I'm going, and sometimes Google has to actually get me back home. Um, I'm that incompetent in that area. Um, I also know absolutely nothing about boats or ships. I found out there's a difference this week. There you go. Maybe you're like me. Boats go on ships. Ships don't go on boats. There you go. There's your Jeopardy fact for the day. Um, but I know nothing about these things. I was on a sailboat when I was a little kid, and I believe I had to be even tethered to the boat. And, and I've read, you know, some books and seen Pirates of the Caribbean, but that's about it for me. So I learned a lot this week. And if I pronounce something wrong, you Navy guys can correct me towards the end. But hopefully as we sort through all the details, hopefully as we walk through even the difficult areas that are hard to understand, you can see what Luke and what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us in this story. Well, there are three sections to this story and I've kind of split them up in our time together so the first thing we see at the beginning of of Acts 27 is a tough start as they head out on their boat trip from Caesarea they have a tough start come across some difficulties and then they encounter a terrible storm in verse 13 and then lastly they have a timely shipwreck so tough start terrible storm and a timely shipwreck now don't forget why we're on the boat in the first place Way back, back in Acts 25, Paul appealed to Caesar while he was on trial. And Festus at the time said, okay, we're going to send you to Caesar. And he had Agrippa give his blessing. But then as he sent him off to Caesar, there was a long journey ahead of him. This was in about AD 59, 60, so we're talking 27 years after Jesus. And then in Acts 27, what we have here is a detailed travelogue by Dr. Luke. How did Paul get from those trials in Caesarea all the way to Rome? Well, that's what Acts 27 and even part of 28 will tell us. And this story is, is packed with incredible details. The, even the, the smallest things that you would never notice, but all these details show that, once again, this is an eyewitness account. Luke was along for the ride. And we know that not only because the details, but because he uses the word we repeatedly through the story, just like we'll see in verse 1. So we have Luke, we have Paul, and let's see what else we have, starting in verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adermitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out the sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Sicilia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lysiah. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing to Italy, and put us on board. We sailed slowly for days, for a number of days, and arrived with difficulty off of Sinaitis. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Solomon. Coasting along, it was difficult. We came to the place called Fairhavens, near which was the city of Licea. So we have a ton of details already in these first eight verses. And I want to start breaking these down by talking about who's on this boat, who's on this journey. We already know it's Paul, and we know about Luke. But then Luke mentions in verse 1, he says that there are other prisoners on this boat. Now we'll find out in verse 38 that there are actually 276 people on board. Not all of those are prisoners, but a lot of them are. And most likely these prisoners have a death sentence. And they're headed to Rome to go and die in the arena. So that's Paul's company aboard this crazy journey. And he's also joined by his friend Aristarchus from Thessalonica. It says that in verse 2. Now this this man does pop up in the book of Acts, Acts 20. Uh, he also pops up in Colossians and Philemon. And every time that he's talked about, he seems to be a faithful servant, a help to Paul. And a lot of commentators thought, you know what, he's probably joining Paul because he's he's the one funding the trip. Remember, this is back in the day when the government didn't pay for prisoners. This is when your friends had to bail you out. They had to provide for your needs, your food, your, your clothing, everything. So maybe Aristarchus is the one coming along to provide for those needs of Paul. If not, he's at least a friendly face that can give him hope in this tough time. We also find out in verse 1 that Paul is joined by this Augustine cohort. Now, that's um, part of the imperial army that, that's in charge of prison transfers. And they're led by this man named Julius. And Julius is a Roman centurion. He's in charge of a lot of soldiers, right? Century, you would expect 100, but it's actually about 80 to 100 soldiers. And Julius is like their commanding officer. Well, Julius actually turns out to be a big blessing to Paul, both during the storm and in the beginning of the story, as we've already read. So those are the men on board. Now, what course did they take? And this is where it can be a little foggy for us, geography-wise. Well, if you remember, last we heard of Paul, he was in prison. He was going under trial in Caesarea. That's where he went before Felix and Festus. So that's where their journey starts. And that is north of Jerusalem. So if you have your map, or maybe you have a map in your study Bible, it's north of Jerusalem, but it's still in Judea. And it's right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And so for the first leg of their trip, they get on a small ship, and they head 70 miles up the coast to this place called Sidon. And at this place, they they stop to resupply, and Julius does something that's really strange. He actually lets Paul go. Not free, but says, go visit your friends, go gather supplies, go have some time. That's not a luxury that prisoners usually afford. So whether Festus put in a good word because he thought he was innocent, or whether Julius, just like Paul, he let Paul go and have this time of fellowship, which is much needed after we see what will happen to him on this trip. So after Sidon, they set set sail again north. They go around the island of Cyprus. This is where the boating terms come in. Look at verse 4. At the end it says, they They sailed under the lee of Cyprus. If you're like me, you're like, who's Lee? What are we talking about? Lee of Cyprus. The Lee is basically just this word for the protection of the island. They would sail around on the side of the island real close to shore where the weather wasn't bad. And they sailed around the Lee of Cyprus trying to avoid the bad weather um, so that they would get protection from any storms or anything else that might have happened. And then they shall sail around Cyprus. They get to the city called Myra in verse 5 before setting off to Italy. And this is when they need to change boats. Now, this is an interesting thing that happens here. Look at verse 6. It says, The centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing from Italy, or sailing, uh, for, sailing for Italy, and put us on board. Now, Paul and his companions were on this boat headed up the coast of Asia. But now they're going to switch boats to this boat that's from Alexandria. And that's Alexandria, Egypt. We'll find out later that this is actually a grain vessel. There's lots of wheat on board because they toss it off in the middle of the storm. And the reason why this boat was there is because Egypt was like the breadbasket of the world back then. And Rome needed to import 150 to 200,000 tons of wheat each year. So this is one of those boats, this is one of those cargo ships that was taking the wheat on up to Rome. And we know actually that this boat would have been very large. Josephus estimates that it could hold hold up to 600 people. There's only 276 on board, so there's probably a lot of cargo, but that's what we have going on. And they sail under the lee of Crete. Verse 7 there, so under the protection of another island, they come all the way around and they end up in this place called Fair Havens in verse 8. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read Fair Havens, I'm thinking, wow, this place sounds great. Right? Fair Havens, calm waters. Actually, it's kind of a trap. <laughs> it's kind of like Apple Valley. Have you ever been to Apple Valley in desert? Sorry if you're there. I don't think there are any apples or apple trees in Apple Valley. There's just lots of Joshua trees. But the, this this place was kind of a dump. It actually um, was a really dangerous place to harbor for the winter. They didn't want to stay there. There wasn't safety from the storm because it was on the southwest side of the island. And so they had to make a decision. They had to decide, well, are we going to stay here and harbor here in this bad weather? Or are we going to move on and try to go to another harbor? And this is where it gets interesting. Verse 9. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous... Because even the fast was already over. Now, this fast is a reference to the Day of Atonement, which is in October. So we're talking this is probably mid-November. Not a good time to travel. This is the time when all the cruise ships are on discounted rates, right? Mid November, December, this is bad, bad seas, bad weather, and Paul's worried about this. So look what he says there. Paul advised him, verse ten saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss not only of cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot, the captain, and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there. And on the chance that someone somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So Paul hears they're thinking about moving and he's concerned. And he basically says, guys, based on my experience, this is not going to end well. Now I know Paul is a preacher and a tent maker. He's not a sailor. But at this point, he's actually a very experienced traveler. Some commentators estimate that he's he's already traveled maybe 3,500 sea miles at this point. 2 Corinthians says he's already been through a couple shipwrecks by now. So if you're going to listen to a guy about bad weather and shipwrecks, Paul seems like he's the guy to listen to. But the owner of the boat, probably thinking of the bottom line, and the centurion and the captain say, you know what, we need to move on. We need to get to our destination as soon as possible. And so the centurion ignores Paul and decides, you know, what? we're going to move on to this harbor that's called Phoenix, not Phoenix, Arizona. I know that came to my mind first, but it's Phoenix on this island of Crete, which is just 40 miles west. Not a far trip. Seems like it wouldn't be a big deal. But those were famous last words. (laughs) Because we've had a tough start. We've had mild weather. We've had uh, some tough decisions. But now they're going to interact with this terrible storm. Starting in verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor. For those land lovers out there, that means they took off the parking brake. All right. So they weighed anchor, they lifted the anchor. And they sailed along Crete close to the shore. At this point, they're probably thinking that Paul's just he's just a worrywart. He doesn't know what he's talking about, bad weather, whatever. And then verse 14. But soon a tempestuous wind, literally a hurricane-like wind, called the Northeaster, struck down from the land. That These storms are actually famous in this part of the world, infamous even. That's why they have a name. They're called the Northeaster, which isn't probably hard to figure out where it comes from. Right? It's this, this great wind that used to come off this big mountain on the island of Crete from the northeast, and it was so strong that it would blow even these big, huge ships, these huge sailboats, out to sea. And it would claim tons of lives because it would blow them out to sea in really horrible weather. Well, look what happens next, verse 15. And when the ship was caught, caught by this nor'easter, and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, driven out to sea, running under the lee of a small island called Kada. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sartis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. So this violent storm shakes them, and you can see what happens. They do everything in their power to stay alive, don't they? First thing they do, they have this little rowboat off the back of the boat so they can go ashore. This boat's taken on water. They pull it up on board, hoping to save the boat and not to pull that under. Then they start wrapping the boat. They actually would have used ropes or, or cables. This process was known as, as fracking, frapping. They would do that, and they would try to hold the hull together so when it hits something, it would stay together. They get so desperate that they lower the sea anchor, which is not an anchor to go to the bottom of the ocean to stop it. It's just like a, a break in a way to drop in the water to slow them down. And this goes on for days Three days, actually, and they get so desperate that they start throwing cargo overboard. I haven't been on a boat, but I know that's a bad sign. Throwing cargo overboard and tackle overboard. And verse 20 just sums up what they're feeling. Look at verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us. Gosh, would you just think of that? The sky is so black Black as night. And this storm is just tossing them all around. It's not like they had compasses back then or or GPS. They had no clue where they were going because the only way they could find their way was by stars and by the shore. So there was nothing for them. And they had done everything in their power to fix this. Right, All that work to wrap the boat and drop the anchor, but nothing seems to, to take care of it. This storm, this difficulty is just beyond them. So what do you think they did? What would you do? What would you do coming across a hopeless situation like this? Where the situation is completely beyond you. You've reached the end of yourself. You realize there's no turning back. There's no fixing this. There's, there's no help coming. It is what it is. Now from experience and from being with people long enough, I know that in these situations, our default is to despair, isn't it? It's to despair. It's to give up hope. And that's exactly what they do. Verse 20. Right at the end. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And those are such somber words. Complete desperation. Complete loss. No resources to fix themselves. And all the men just basically said, you know what, we're giving up. We're just going to die. And every man was hopeless on the, on the boat except for one man. One man stood up in the midst of this storm, in the midst of this chaos, and decided to speak truth to people that were hurting in this way. And he does this in verse 21. And of course we know it's Paul. Verse 21 says, Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. And not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Now, no matter how many times I read this, it still feels kind of like an I told you so, right? Like, ah, who's the guy that said we shouldn't sail? Oh, that was me, right? That was me. That's not what he's saying here. It feels like that, but it's not really. Because look at the next verse. Paul's trying to demonstrate his credibility. He's saying, you didn't listen to me last time, so listen to me this time. Verse 22. Yet now I urge you to take heart, to have hope. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Oh, this is an incredible scene. In the midst of this storm, it's almost as if Paul stands up behind a pulpit and starts to preach. Isn't it? It's incredible that he stands up and says these words to give them hope. And what hope does he give them? The boat is a goner. The boat's going to be lost, but we're all going to live because we're going to shipwreck. We're going to crash on an island. And just so you know, that's that's actually a pretty bold statement. Because at this place in the Mediterranean Sea, there were no islands anywhere. To find an island in the Mediterranean Sea was to like, saying, finding a needle in a haystack. And Paul's news, I mean, that they're going to shipwreck, it kind of sounds like bad news and good news, doesn't it? Hey guys, we're going to survive, but barely. We're barely going to survive this thing, but have hope. Okay, Paul, I'm not sure what you mean by that, but I'll, I'll trust you. But the first question that has to come to their minds is, well, Paul, how do you know this? How do you know that this is going to happen? And Paul gives us that answer, doesn't he? Verse 23, what does he say? An angel appeared to me. An angel of the God whom I serve appeared to me and told me these things were true. Now, if, if you were on that boat, and this was you and Paul was talking to you, what's the first question that would come to your mind at this point? Now, they don't ask a question, but I feel like Paul is already answering their question here. Wouldn't the first question be, why should I trust this angel? Paul, why should I trust you? Why should I trust this God that you say belongs, that you belong to, that you worship and you serve? And Paul could have said a number of things at this point. He could have said, look, my God is omniscient. He knows everything. He just knows that this is all going to work out. He, he knows the past, the present, and the future. So he just knows how this is going to end. He could have said, my God is, is sovereign. He controls the wind and the waves. He's made me and you. He's actually not only sovereign, but he's omnipotent. He's all powerful. He can do all his holy will. So he's going to make this happen, which would have been true. He could have said, well, my God is good. He cares about us. He doesn't want these horrible things to happen to us. So he's going to work it out. He's going to fix this. And all those things will be good. All those things will be true. But Paul doesn't go there. Where does Paul go? What does he say? Verse 23. He says this. This is the God to whom I belong. And whom I worship. This God owns me. Now we know what Paul means by that from his letters, don't we? That God owns us because he made us. He owns us by creation, but he also owns his children by redemption, doesn't he? That's why Paul can say, I've been bought with a price. I'm a bond servant. I'm a slave to this God. And Paul could have even extended it and said, look, I've been serving this God for a long time and he's never let me down. I almost feel like Paul is is answering the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism here. Now he's not, it hasn't been written yet, but it was an answer that these men would have loved to hear and it sounds like what Paul's saying. Many of you know that, right? What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong body and soul both in life and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This God owns me. In verse 25. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God. I have faith in the God who owns me, who won't abandon me, that it will be exactly as I have been told. You see what Paul's saying here? I trust that my God is faithful. My God keeps his word. I've been serving this God for 25, 30 years, and he's never let me down. He's been with me through imprisonment, through through mob violence, through a stoning. He's been with me through a ton of shipwrecks already, and He's still with me now. He even appeared to me in the storm to tell me the same promise I already knew. He's already told me I was going to get to Rome, but now He says it one more time to show me that He's there, to show me that He's with me, that my work is not done yet. And He's extended that promise and said, not only is He going to save Paul, He's going to save everybody on board. So take heart, men. I serve a faithful God. That's the hope that he gives this man. What a great speech. What, what else could he found their hope on than this? In the middle of this storm. And let's see what happens. Verse 27. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven along the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms a little farther on they took another sounding and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that, they might, that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for the day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Now, be honest, is that what you expected? Paul just laid out these amazing truths, got them all pumped up and filled with hope. And what happened? Drifted sea for 14 days. Wouldn't you expect that this is the moment like when Jesus stood up and rebuked the storm and said, shut up, and the waves just went away? Or the moment when they tossed Jonah into the sea and the waves just went away? After this incredible speech, you would expect God to show up. But He doesn't. He doesn't relieve their despair. He doesn't help them out. But this is so often the case with pain and suffering, isn't it? God often doesn't relieve pain and suffering in miraculous ways. So often, He chooses to use common means, ordinary graces, like our wisdom and people and decisions. And that's exactly what God does here. These men trust Paul. They start to look for, sand, for land by, by running these soundings. Now, if you don't know what these soundings are, that is mentioned in verse 28. They basically would take a rope some weight on the rope, and they would drop it into the water to see how deep it was. And they would measure it by fathoms. And fathoms are essentially the, the wingspan of a grown man, about six feet, because they would measure out the rope one fathom at a time. And they dropped the rope. They, they found it was 20 fathoms. And in 15 fathoms, they're getting close to land. So they don't want to approach it too quickly. So they go to the back of the boat, and they drop these four anchors, these sea anchors, to slow them down so they don't crash. And then verse 29, look at that. They, they, they're, they're still desperate, aren't they? They pray for the day to come. So they're still struggling with this despair, but then they have a new problem. Then the sailors plan this escape. Now think about this for a minute. The sailors are supposed to be the ones used to bad weather. Right? They're supposed to be the ones used to storms like this, and they're wanting to abandon ship. This storm must be incredible. And they, they go on this pretense and say, No, we're going to drop anchors from the front of the boat. And they decide to drop the boat, the little lifeboat, and to make a getaway. Paul figures it out, and he actually gives them this, this incredible warning, doesn't he? Look what he says, verse 31. Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. This is an interesting warning by Paul. He's basically saying, Look, don't try to fix this yourselves. You've gone from despair on one end now to rebellion on the other. You're going back and forth in this pendulum swing. No, trust God. Trust in the hope that He gave us. Stay on board the ship. My God is faithful to deliver us. And then he takes it one step further. Verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when, they had, when he said, had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Paul says something interesting here, doesn't he? Stay in the boat. Let's eat. You see what Paul's doing here? He, he's not a fatalist. He's not a hyper-Calvinist at this point. He, he actually believes that God will do his work through means. Through ordinary means, like obeying and sticking together, like eating food. Paul's basically saying, look, God's going to save us, so eat up. You're going to need your strength for this. You're going to need your strength for what we're doing here. Isn't this just like the Christian life? So many of the Christian promises are, you're going to be fine, so work at it. And You think, well, which one is it? Am I going to be fine or do I have to work hard? Yes. Right, Philippians 2 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But which one is it? It's both. I work my tail off and find out at the end, it was God the whole time. Or in Nehemiah's day, I love this, and they say, look, we're going to pray that God would deliver us from our enemies. And we're going to put a guy with a sword on that wall. He said, well, wait, wait a minute. Don't you trust God? Yeah, I trust God that he's going to protect us through the guy with the sword on the wall. Right? That's what he's saying here. And this is the way it works with God. He uses ordinary common means most often to keep his promises. He does intervene in, in irregular ways and miraculous ways at times, but most of the time it's very common, very every day to give us hope and peace. And Paul is saying, look, trust this God. Eat some bread. Now it says he broke bread here. It doesn't mean that he's he's giving communion here. He's not running a worship service. These aren't all Christians. But he does pray in front of these men, reminding them once again who their hope is. It's not in Paul. Don't despair. Don't rebel. Let's eat and trust God. And it says in verse 36, they found hope again. And this is the weird thing. It says that they just found hope, so they tossed the weed overboard do not you expect that would be the opposite of hope? Hey, we're going to make it. We're going to get there, so let's hold on to the cargo. But this is this last effort of saying, you know what? We're not going to make it. Let's toss the cargo, and I have hope that God will be the one to fulfill his promises. That's what's going on here. So we've seen the tough start. We've seen this terrible storm that's lasted for weeks, and now we see this timely shipwreck, God's delivery of these men. Look at 39 with me. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. At the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, they ho- then hoisted the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef they ran the vessel aground, the the bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered that those who could swim to jump overboard first and make it for land, and the rest on planks. Or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Incredible story, isn't it? They finally see land after weeks. And you notice as soon as they see land, when the daylight comes, they're making a beeline for the shore, right? They cut off those sea anchors that were slowing them down. They loose the rudder. They they hoisted this mainsail, this foresail that would take them there. And they're going as fast as they can to the beach. But they don't make it. They run aground in some reef. And did you notice that even when their deliverance is right in front of them, even when they almost seem like they're going to make it, the soldiers still want to rebel. They still want to fight God's plan because they're scared. Remember, soldiers back then, if you lose the prisoner then whatever penalty the prisoner had is on you. These men were condemned to die, so if these soldiers lost their prisoners, their life was gone. So their plan was to kill off all these prisoners so that they would survive. And Julius steps in, praise God for this man. Whether it was by faith or by common grace, God used him mightily to preserve Paul and to keep his promises here, right? Even in this ordinary means, he fights this rebellion, and everybody, everybody... Even the people that can't swim make it to shore. Don't you just love verse 44? And so it was that all were brought safely to land. That's it. That's the story. That's the actual, the entire point of the story. God promised that Paul would make it to Rome, God promised that the ship would be lost, that the crew would be saved, and it all happened exactly as God said. God was faithful. That's the point of the whole story. The point of Acts 27 is to not look at this and say, look how great Paul was. Look how faithful he was. Look how much he trusted the Lord. Look at all the great things that God used to do. Just be like Paul. Have faith. Trust Him. Work harder. Do better. That's not the point of Acts 27. The point is, behold your God. He's faithful. He keeps his word. He keeps his promises. Trust in the Lord. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's not just the hope when you're on a boat. That's the hope that we share. That's the hope that we we live on, we depend on each and every day as believers. Now you may hear that and think, well, big deal. It's a nice story and all, but I, I don't really see how it matters to me. Maybe you hear this at this moment, you're in the midst of rebellion yourself. You've been fed up with a God that seems not to act in your life. Been fed up and trying to get things for yourself because it seems like God's not going to provide for you. He's not good, He's not providing for your needs as you think you need, so you're going to get it for yourself. Now, I know from experience, brothers and sisters, the only end of rebellion is despair. This world does not satisfy. There's no hope. There's no peace. You will constantly go from rebellion to despair to rebellion and despair, even on into eternity if you're in that state. There is no hope apart from God. And maybe you're not in rebellion now, but you're in despair. You come this morning feeling forsaken, abandoned, forgotten. You may feel that, look, God's there, but he just doesn't care about me. And it could be that you don't belong to Him. We all belong to God by by creation, but every single one of us have rebelled against our Creator. We've gone our own way. We've broken His law and rebelled against Him. And if that's the case, then we are in that rebellion. That is our state. And there is no hope for you apart from the work of Christ. There's no hope outside of God Himself, the faithful one and the true one. And the only hope is to repent of your sins, to turn to the faithful God, to recognize your own unfaithfulness, and to come before him in faith. Well, maybe you're here today, and you do belong to God by creation and by redemption. But you're still in the midst of rebellion, or you're still in the midst of despair. You may say, you know what, look, I I know all this. I've heard Acts 27 a hundred times. I've, I know all this theology. I've heard it a million times. But you know what? I just think I'm exempt from it. I just think it doesn't apply to me. Whether by shame or by anger or by pride, you feel like you got yourself into this mess, so God wants you to get yourself out. That's the way every other world religion works, right? Or maybe circumstantially, you're actually doing okay, but you can't sleep at night. You struggle with depression and pain, and suffering, and you don't even know why. And you're in the midst of this pain, unable to help yourself, unable to fix the problem. You're tapped out. You have no more resources. Well, you need to know this morning that there is hope for you. But you need to find that hope in the right place. It would be so tempting in the story to think, well, you know what? If God came to me at night, gave me a vision, gave me a dream like He gave to Paul, then everything would be fine. If he told me that you're going to keep your job, that my career will turn out okay, or my kids will turn out okay, or everything will be fine. If he told me that my health issue will be resolved, or my trauma will be over, if it's all going to end, then it would be fine. If I knew that from God, if he would do that for me, everything would be great. But he doesn't. I don't get those kind of promises. You know what? You're right. We don't get those kind of promises very often. Because you know what? We have better promises. Far better promises. Just think of the promises in Acts alone. Acts 2 says, And it shall come to pass that everyone, no matter how far you are, no matter who you are, no matter what you've been through, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Saved from whatever you're going through. Saved from our greatest enemy of Satan and sin. Acts 2 let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus was dead, but He's alive. So everything He said was true. Everything He did was true. He accomplished salvation for us. He's alive. He's ruling and reigning. Acts 16, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Acts 17, He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness, by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. Oh, if you're in in despair, and you've suffered from injustice, sometimes the greatest hope to know is that God's going to take care of that injustice. When it passes through the system, when nothing seems to take care of it, and they're not getting what they deserve, God sees it. God will repay. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. In Acts 24, Paul said, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Paul says, Look, I believe everything in this book, every threat, every promise, every hope. This is what's supplied all of my needs because it comes from a faithful God. And what Luke is doing is he's screaming to us the same message that's coming from the rest of Acts and the rest of the Bible. That the God who was with Adam and Eve in the garden that gave him grace and a promise that said, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to send my son to crush Satan one day. That the God who was with Abraham pull him out of his idolatry when he was lost in pagan idolatry and wandering away from God and said, I'm going to give you a promise that is for you and all your children. The God who was faithful to Isaac and Jacob and his 12 sons. The God who delivered Joseph from slavery and from death. The God who delivered Israel through Joseph. The God who delivered Moses and the people of God in the desert and from Egypt. The God who was faithful to David and all the prophets. And the God who was faithful to Paul. In mob violence and assassination attempts. While in prison and even in shipwrecks. It's the same God that we trust in. The same God that we find hope in. It's the same God that fulfills even better promises. Because this God's taken on way more than a storm. He's taken on our greatest enemy of sin and Satan and death. He sent His Son to free us from that curse. And the Son came and lived in our place. He went to the cross to pay our debt. And He rose from the dead to give us newness of life and forgiveness and sin. And he's, he's forgiven us, but He's also brought us into the family of God. Given us hope and peace. And He lives on high. He rules and reigns so that He can work everything for our good and for His glory. So that no matter what comes our way, that we still have hope that we will make it safe and sound. We're going to make it home safe and sound looking just like Jesus. That's our hope. That Jesus has conquered our greatest enemies. That's our God. That's why Paul can say every promise is yes and amen in Christ. That's why Paul can say in Corinthians that even the light and momentary afflictions in this world are nothing, they're nothing in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that is to come. Brothers and sisters, that's our hope because that's our God. So I say with Paul to you, wherever you are today, Whatever circumstances you find yourself in, take heart. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a tremendous father you are. Not a father who gives us his word and breaks his promises, whether by accident or by That intentions. Lord, you are faithful and true to the end. You stay with your children. You give hope to your children. You're gracious and patient with your children. You are perfect. And we're so thankful to know you, to know you not because we are righteous, not because we were good enough or had the potential to be good enough to know you by the blood of Jesus, our only hope. And we find great hope no matter what storm we're in, what loss we've had, What difficulty in this life. We know our greatest need is to be right with you, our Heavenly Father. And you've given us that hope and peace in Jesus. Help us to see it. Help us to battle rebellion and despair with the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.